Psalm 34. This is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened or enlightened. And their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack, and they suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life, and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil, and do good. Seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Amen. And then Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter... Three. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the circumcision. For we are the true circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, or were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, they walk in such a way, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. But our conversation, or our citizenship, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Amen. As we meditated on the transfiguration this morning... I trust that you heard and indeed remember that the Lord Jesus was before the face of God in prayer. This is Luke's emphasis in Luke chapter 9, that the Lord Jesus in his transfiguration or prior to it, he was at prayer. He took Peter, John and James up to the mountain or up up the mountain with him in order to pray. And then prayer, by the way that Luke phrased it, prayer is what led to the transfiguration. We learn that Jesus' countenance was changed. His face was altered. His clothes were lightened by his being in the presence of his Father. The Father confirmed his presence with the cloud and his own voice out of the cloud. This was not as happens often in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus would try to get away for a time of seclusion to pray in privacy. No, he took others with him. And the Father confirmed that he was there as well by the cloud coming down and speaking out of it. This was a time of earnest prayer wherein Jesus would reveal his glory to three of his disciples and Moses and Elijah. Now, For those of you who were here, I don't know how hard it was for you to grasp the connection that has that this passage has to your own humanity being transformed before the face of God in prayer. 
Indeed, it is a hard thing to explain. As I argued, if the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect holiness was transformed in his humanity, he was transfigured at prayer, how much more so should we expect ourselves to be changed when we are at prayer? It shows a purpose of prayer that we don't often consider. We're often praying for others, for others to change, for things to change in the world. And we should pray for those things. But we forget that prayer changes us. And we need to be reminded that prayer does not change God. It is hard to persuade the church that the chief glory of salvation is not the forgiveness of sin. But that is part of it. It is being restored to the image of God. It is hard to persuade my own soul of the glory of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and knowing that that is where the church is going. Because you think about it, we have the forgiveness of sins, we have the resurrection, we have the promise of righteousness, we have imputed righteousness, we have the security of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of the Spirit that secures us for the age to come. But all of those things give way to one ultimate thing, and that's to look on God forever. That is what heaven is. That is what the eternal state is. I feel a bit like David in Psalm 34, having to persuade my own soul to make my boast in the Lord. Because the boast of the Christian is not what the Lord gives. It is the Lord himself. There are a few places that speak in Psalm 34 of looking on God or, or seeing him. And speaking of the eyes of the Lord and the face of the Lord, there's, there's at least four. Maybe you could count some others. Maybe I missed one. But they all present the Lord as in front of, out in front of, the saint. Indeed, out in front of David. Matthew Henry says this, When we look to the world, we are darkened, we are perplexed, and at a loss. But when we look to God, from Him we have the light both of direction and joy, and our way is made both plain and pleasant. You see, so often when we think of looking to the Lord, we just think of, like, I'm going to think about what the Bible says for guidance. I'm going to think about what God would have me do. Now, the way that this presented and the way that it's described in Scripture is that we are literally looking to heaven, waiting on God for guidance. Yes, he gives it to us in his word. Yes, all those things are true, but we have to re, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We have to uh, bring back our imagination and, and reignite our souls so that we can see the glory and the power of this. In verse 5 of Psalm 34, we are told that the faithful looked to the Lord and were lightened. They were enlightened. Their, their countenance was changed. You might say they were or are transfigured. They experience what the Lord Jesus experiences. Yes, it's ultimate and it's in the life to come when we are fully rid of sin. But it's still stated here. Psalm 34, verse 5. They, the faithful, those who magnify the Lord together with David, they looked to God and were lightened. They were enlightened. Their faces were not ashamed. See, that's different than simply 
thinking in some abstract way of looking to God for guidance. It's looking at Him. And looking at God is knowing that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. But notice that He said at the end of verse 5 that their faces were not ashamed. How often do we carry the light of the Lord on our faces but do so with shame? We treat His ordinances with shame. We are ashamed of His Word. We turn from applying the Word in difficult contexts because of the shame that others might try to heap upon us. But there is, there is no need for this. The light that God gives is meant to help us to see like light does. It's meant to help us decide and help us to act, not to cower in fear or in inaction or disobedience. Indeed, the question might be asked, what greater light or mark on our face could we have than the blessing of God? Remember the ironic benediction in number 6, that the face of God would be turned toward us, that His countenance would be upon us. This psalm does a very interesting thing we'll get to in a moment. Before we get to that, there's also this idea of tasting. Yes, we won't talk so much about that, but seeing that the Lord is good. Again, or this is one of those coffee cup verses, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We are those who not only taste, but we see that the Lord is good. How do you see a spirit? You do so with the eyes of faith. You trust and you wait. And upon seeing that, we receive blessing upon blessing, the psalmist says, if we would trust in Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man that trusts in Him. The man that trusts in the Lord does not have to look to the past for blessing. He doesn't say, blessed is the man who did trust in the Lord. He doesn't say, blessed is the man who will trust in the Lord. He said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Present tense, meaning always trusting, always receiving God's blessing. He receives and lives in the Lord's blessing because of his trust in the Lord as he looks toward him. That interesting thing that I said this psalm does happens in verse 15 and 16 because in the first half of the psalm, you might say that it's talking about the saint's face being directed towards God. In the second half of the psalm, you have God's face being directed towards the saints. In verse 15 and 16, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Dear Christians, you can know that the one on whom you look is also looking at you. Children, you know this comfort, right? You know the encouragement of this when you do something good and you turn and look to see if mom is looking, to see if dad saw it. You say, mommy, look what I can do. Daddy, did you see that? The same idea is present here from the Lord God, knowing our frame. We're instructed that the Christians know that God's eyes are upon us. But we're also instructed that the face of God is against them that do evil. Notice the difference, right? You have the eyes being upon the righteous, and you have the face being against, let's turn it around, right? The face is against those who do evil. What's the distinction here? Let's take a stab at it. 
If someone's eyes are on you, then their face is towards you. But if their face is against you, you know their eyes have turned from you. It's saying the same thing, but using a different phrase. It doesn't mean that the Lord does not see evil, but that He has seen it and refused to regard it. He refused to protect them. He refused to look with loving eyes, as it were, on those who do evil. He has turned His entire face against them. Maybe you're thinking at this point of a modern hymn that says this line, The Father turned His face away. Also in Habakkuk 1, verse 13, I think it is, the Lord cannot look on iniquity. doesn't mean He doesn't see it. It's talking about His affections. And some relate this turning away of the face of the Father, as the hymn does, as Psalm 22 does, to the time of Christ's crucifixion. We know that Christ has died in our place, bearing the pain of the face of His Father being turned from Him. That's not any point about the attributes of God, that there was a separation in the eternal operations of this, the the simplicity of God, or anything like that. It's just words that God chose to describe the pain of the crucifixion, that Christ knew what it was to have the face of the Lord being against Him as our sin-bearing sacrifice, so that that same Father might look on us with favor and love. And in our reading from Philippians, maybe you notice the, the direction of Paul's eyes. Children, Paul used uh, a sports language or, or race language or competition language. He says that he has not yet apprehended the final thing, but he is not distracted by what is behind him. He's reaching forth unto those things which are before him. He's doing as Hebrews 4 says, which Paul also wrote. He's striving to enter into his eternal rest. Paul even sets himself up as an example one who is always beholding and always striving to enter. He says, be followers together of me. Well, if you're following him, then by implication, he's going somewhere. <clears throat> what does verse 13 and 14 say? He says he's forgetting those things which are behind. He's forgetting the world. And he's reaching forth to those things which are before, even those things that he cannot see pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says that those who are not walking towards the Lord, those who are not looking toward the Lord, those who do not have the Lord set before them and do not strive for Him, He says to mark them just as they would mark Paul and those who walked with the Lord, mark those who do not walk like Paul and do not follow them. Those who are walking towards the face of God, those who are walking towards glory, are worthy of following. Indeed, this should make you think of the book of Proverbs that sets these two ways before you over and over again. What way are you walking? Those who are not walking towards glory, Paul says, do not follow them. <clears throat> you see, the truth is, once you are granted the sight of the Lord, you dare not turn away. For your citizenship, or as the King James says, your conversation is in heaven. 
So you live with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength devoted there. That line from Colossians 3, I think I I rehearsed it in a prayer this morning. Uh, But it says, Colossians 3, starting at verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek them, go towards them, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What a mystery. What a glorious thing to set our hearts on. We are to literally look to heaven. And to await, as Paul says in Philippians 3, to await the coming of the Lord. He says, for our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From there, we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're literally looking up, waiting, setting ourselves towards it, desirous of the Christ to come. He coming from there is the one who Paul says in the second half of verse uh, 20. He coming from there is the one who will bring about the transfiguration of your vile or lowly body. That it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body. You see the end or the telos, the goal of Paul's aims. Children, this is a wonderful thing to meditate on. You know, it's hard to understand all the time what it is to live as a Christian, to make those difficult decisions that mom and dad call you to that you don't always really want to do, but you know you should. One of the things you can set before yourself is that you will one day be made like the Lord Jesus in a glorified body. You will not have the ability to be tempted. You will not have the ability to desire or think about anything contrary to what is good. These are the end, the goal of Paul's aims. The glorified body, the transfigured body like Christ that was shown that day on the mountain to Moses, to Elijah, to Peter, to John, and to James. Indeed, in the Lord's transfiguration, we are shown what will happen if... We are in the presence of God. We are shown what happens to redeemed humanity that is in communion with God. Our humanity is changed. We experience this in this life, of course, in spurts and foretastes, ups and downs. Yet in the life to come, that mark which we are all striving toward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that is what we desire utterly. It awaits us, yet it is always before us. Have you ever noticed at the end of Psalm 23 where it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, pursue me. The goodness and mercy of God pursues the saint all the days of their life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When does that begin? It doesn't just begin in the life to come. It has begun even now. Where we are before God. We are in His house forever and ever. United to and brought in by His Son. In Psalm 16 verse 8, the psalmist says, prefiguring the Lord Jesus, 
I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. I'd encourage you to speak these words to your own soul. Put them into practice day by day. Not that you can contain God as the idols are contained and set Him right there. But that you make this conscious decision to put God in front of you. Or to put it better, to put yourself in front of the Lord. Put it into practice day by day, knowing that those who look to Him, those who dwell in His house, those who are in His presence are enlightened and their faces are not ashamed. They see that the Lord is good. They look to the Lord and His eyes are on them. We look to the Lord and His eyes are upon us forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.